Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hi, welcome to another session on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is Fleet Mall, your co-host for this session, and I'm really thrilled and honored to be here today with our long-term colleague and Dharma sister in this work, uh, Venerable Tupton Children. Welcome, Venerable Children. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you today. So I'm going to share a little bit of your background with our audience, and, uh, and then we'll jump right into the conversation, all right? Good. So the Venerable Thupten Chodron was ordained as a Tibetan Buddhist nun in 1977. Uh, she is an author, teacher, and founder and abbess of Shravasti Abbey. Uh, Shravasti Abbey is one of the first Tibetan Buddhist training monasteries for Westerners in the U.S. And the Abbey holds uh, gender equality, social engagement, and care for the environment amongst its core values. Venerable Children teaches worldwide and is known for her practical and humorous explanations of how to apply Buddhist teachings in daily life. She is also involved in prison outreach and interfaith dialogue. She has published many books on Buddhist philosophy and meditation and is currently assisting His Holiness the Dalai Lama in the writing and publication of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion, a multi-volume series of teachings on the Buddhist path. You can find about more about Venerable Children's work at thuptonchildren.org uh, and also at shravasti.org. That's S-R-A-B-A-S-T-I.org. So again, welcome, Venerable Children. Thank you very much for being part of our summit and for the, for the decades of prison Dharma work that you've been doing. So you are uh, a longtime Buddhist monastic and really an international Buddhist leader uh, and renowned teacher. And so I'm curious, how did you first get involved in prison Dharma work? Mm. It's an interesting story. Uh, I was the resident teacher at Dharma Friendship Foundation in Seattle. And I got a letter one day from an inmate uh, in federal prison in Ohio. And he was asking some questions and wanted some material. So I started corresponding with him. And then uh, eventually I, uh, I was at some courses in Wisconsin. And so I was able to jump over to Ohio for a weekend. And I went and visited him uh, in the prison. And I asked him, how did you... Uh, find me because I have never done prison work before. And he said that he sent out a letter to 25 Buddhist organizations, and I was the only one that answered. Mm. But then he looked at the list that of uh, centers where he had sent letters, and the place where I was at was not on the list. Oh, my goodness. So how I got his letter is a mystery, <laughs> but that is what started me on the whole thing. What year was that? That was probably maybe 97. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It yeah. was 
a while ago. Yeah, yeah, still in the early days of uh, Buddhist prison ministry. And uh, yeah, very similarly, uh, you know, the the way Prison Dharma Network uh, got started is while I was in prison, Buddhist prisoners were starting to reach out to Buddhist communities and and asking for support and help. And and there really wasn't much experience in the field in Buddhist communities at that time. This is back in like 1986, 87, 88. There was there had only been a little. Of course, there was Bo Lawsoff and Sita Lawsoff's work and more contemplative prison ministry. Um, I think John Dydalori was getting a little something going in New York State. And there had been some Pure Land Buddhist ministry among kind of Asian, more Pure Land Buddhist prisoners and so forth. But there really wasn't much going on. And people actually started sending me letters in prison. They thought because I'd publish some articles, they said, well, well, Fleet will know what to do with these. And I was able to correspond with prisoners in state prisons and county jails, but not federal prisons. That was against the rules. I, I didn't know that they'd let me do the other. I just did it. and They never stopped me. But that's kind of that's how it got started. I think a lot of people got started in this work because a center they were part of got a letter from a prisoner somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's wonderful. So eventually you went into prisons and taught directly in prisons. So yeah. what, what, what was your experience like of actually teaching inside correctional facilities? It was fine. Um, you know, when I told people I was doing this, they were going, aren't you afraid? No, I'm not afraid. You know, why, why should I be afraid? That, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid to go in. And uh, so, so that was just out of the question. But it was strange how people were very concerned about that. Um, what I did realize is, and I only realized this when somebody pointed it out to me. Um, I had gone into uh, a prison in Wisconsin with a friend of mine who was uh, kind of guiding the, the group in prison. And uh, we wanted to have a discussion. So we, I said, let's sit in a circle. And I threw out some questions and we started talking. And it was a very good discussion. And uh, after we left, I commented to my friend, I said, wow, you know, those guys really spoke up and they had some really good ideas. And I was quite pleased with, with the, the discussion. And he commented, well, that's because you treated them e- as equals. Mm. Treated them like everybody else. And that, you know, that kind of made me sit up when he said that. Because again, the usual uh, feeling about, well, you know, these people and they're different from us and mm-hmm. this kind of rubbish. That hadn't entered my mind, you know. It's like they're human beings just like me. They happened, they were in some circumstances, you know, and then they wound up in prison. Um, But why would I treat them any differently? So for me, it was always an experience of uh, sharing, actually, you know. And people would say to me, well, what are you teaching them? And I said, they're teaching me. Mm. Yeah, because they really were. And uh, I learned so much from the people that I work with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really so important to this work. 
And, you know, in my experience during my years of incarceration, um, you know, the place, it was such a blessing to go to some kind of program with outside folks who didn't treat you different or didn't come across like they were trying to fix you or there wasn't a slightly kind of parental kind of thing. Right. And where I got that was in the recovery groups with AA and NA, you know, they were just fellow addicts, fellow drunks, you know, they did, there was no energy of that. And, uh, and, you know, the other volunteers that from time to time we got involved in our Buddhist group there in the prison very much. So, and I think that's been a strength of Buddhist prison ministry. For whatever reason, I think most Western Buddhists just, kind of naturally have that mindset of, uh, you know, not separating from the people who are inside. Um, you know, there are, and this isn't it, because you know, there's a lot of well-meaning prison volunteers that come in with all kinds of programs, religious and secular, that are very well-meaning, but they, they just haven't gotten that context to know how not to kind of treat the prisoners in some kind of other way or special way or like, you know, and, and, and it's, it makes a world of difference because, mm-hmm. When you're in prison, you're you're suffering under this tremendous, you know, having been really demonized throughout your court process and a process of incarceration and then treated as less than human. And, and you have encounters every day that are incredibly demeaning with the staff and with your fellow prisoners. And that's not to say it's all negative, but you have there's a lot of that. And so when you have the experience of somebody coming in from the outside and they just treat you as another human being. Yeah. Adult to adult, human to human. It is it's so healing. It is really profoundly healing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, after my friend made that comment to me, it really made me see that that so much of prison work is just being yourself Mm -hmm. and treating everybody else the way you would treat anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And that it's. How how you are as a human being, um, that that really, like you said, makes the healing and and restores some sense of normalcy. Mm-hmm. Because prison is not a normal environment, yeah, to say the least. Yeah, yeah. So actually, the you know the research, the social sciences research on all kinds of change work and specifically in the field of corrections uh, says the most powerful driver of change is the quality of that relationship between whatever kind of teacher guide is coming in. The content is less important than that relationship. Not to say that the content they're bringing in isn't impactful, but it's that relationship and the quality of that relationship that is most impactful. That's, That's really interesting. I'm curious though, in your experience of doing this kind of work over the years, both in person and through correspondence and with your community, what what is it um, in the Buddhist tradition that that seems to connect with prisoners or what do they connect with mostly in the Buddhist path, the Buddhist tradition? What touches them? Compassion. Mm. Compassion, without a doubt. You know, I found that the, it's mostly men that I work with, but they are mm. so hungry for just talking about compassion, hearing that they too can generate compassion Mm. for everybody equally, even for the prison guards, you know, and and the the force of just uh, compassion existing in this world as something that we uh, have as seeds and that we can cultivate, that has they just resonate with that so much. 
um, it's so important. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. With across the board, I think with all the guys that I deal with. Wow. So during my, certainly during the early years of my incarceration and throughout, but certainly in the early years when it was, you know, very traumatic, finding myself locked up in prison for a long time, obviously, and dealing with that environment. Uh, two of the core practices that really helped me navigate that, my just personally, psychologically, spiritually, were meta practice, the loving kindness practice, and Tom Lin practice. Mm-hmm. And the meta practice, I used to go out and walk the track and just be doing that the whole time for all beings, wow. for my fellow prisoners, for myself. And the Tom Lin practice, I, I worked with, you know, anyone I was having challenging with, you know, in terms of my whole process of incarceration and having ended up there, as well as, you know, what I was dealing with on the inside, just continually working with the Tom Lin practice, the changing self for other practice. So, yeah, those were incredibly important and a way to discover my own. It, it, and somehow that became my road to greater self-compassion and, and re, reclaiming my dignity as a human being, or at least not that I had to reclaim it, but feeling like I was in touch with it. Yeah. 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 Cause I think so much, uh, well, prison is not a compassionate environment, no, but many of the uh, incarcerated people grew up in families where, where mm-hmm. compassion was lacking or mm-hmm. grew up, in communities, you know, where compassion, where, where life was difficult and people didn't necessarily help each other show compassion to each other. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you talk about this and say, you too can become like this, oh, you know, like a whole, uh, you know, the sky clears and they, they see something that they can become and, and want to become. Mm-hmm. And then they also see um, how compassion acts as an antidote to anger. And certainly in prison, you have a lot of anger, not only around you, but in yourself, because it's a difficult situation. Mm-hmm. And so how to look at these people, either the people that you know you were in touch with before that were involved with your going to prison or with the prison guards and the way they treat you or with family members who don't write, you know, that. And so anger comes up and then they just hear about compassion and, you know, seeing the other person as a human being with their own problems, with their own defilements and having compassion for them because they're just like us. We're all trapped in samsara because of our our afflictions and uh and that's something very um yeah it heals the anger and it opens the heart and Mm. i think what people really want is that open heart Mm. i'm curious in your experience how that then connects with um self-compassion and self-forgiveness because often uh you know uh, people who are incarcerated are dealing with everything you just mentioned. Uh, but many also have been involved in harmful behaviors that they have trouble forgiving themselves for. Um, and, and, and also many, many cases they've left children behind on the outside. So I'm curious in your experience of working with the men, how these practices have helped them with self-forgiveness, self-empathy, self-compassion and so forth. Yeah. They're, they're very effective, I think. And, and, uh, again, just the whole idea that, um, 
because if we can cultivate compassion, it means that we are not fixed personalities. No. And that so often mm. is the view is, you know, we are an inherently existent personality who cannot change. And something is really wrong with me. And that's why I'm, why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Or something is really wrong with other people and they did things and that's why I'm here. But everything is really concretized. But when you talk about compassion, you know, and, and that it's possible to cultivate it, you know, then they see, oh, yeah, not only for others, but I can start to forgive myself too. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's really important, you know. That we that that's something I, I really try and emphasize is that and this works for people on the outside too. <laughs> you know, it's not different inside and outside. But we've all made mistakes. If we can look back at the person we were with a sense of understanding that we we knew that that person that we were in the past. Very intimately, we know what their circumstances were. We know how they were thinking. We know the the wrong ways they were thinking too, you know, uh, and how the mind created all sorts of stuff. Uh, so if you can look at that person and see, you know, they were doing their best given the circumstances they were in which weren't always good, and uh, they themselves, what they brought to the circumstances, also weren't, wasn't always good. But we can look at it with understanding, and that understanding, you know, is for the, um, just for the fact that we are all imperfect human beings trying to do better. Mm-hmm. We all want happiness. None of us want to suffer. We're all equal in that way. So we can have compassion for the person that we were. And we can have compassion for our family members. Because often there's a lot of troubles in the families. And we can have Mm -hmm. compassion, you know, if you left kids behind or or whatever. And, And so that helps with the with the self-forgiveness and um and just the fact that you know oh i can develop this this gives a sense of Mm self-confidence you know i'm not a fixed personality i can develop new qualities Mm -hmm. and what's so splendid about the buddha's teachings is the Buddha didn't just say be compassionate because how how do you be compassionate when you don't know how to cultivate it? He actually taught the methods. Meditate on this, then think about this, then contemplate this. And he gave a step-by-step way to do it. And if you follow that step, those steps, you can see the change in yourself. Mm-hmm. Huh? So, so it gives a path. Mm-hmm. So in your prison work, you offer specific contemplations for the for the prisoners to do uh, related to compassion. Mm-hmm. 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 And also, 
Um, another thing that I've found very helpful with them is in, in the Tibetan tradition, we do visualizations. Mm-hmm. For example, visualizing the Buddha in front and, um, you know, and then you create a friendship, you create a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, we, we often speak of purification practices, mm-hmm. which start with expressing our regret for what we've done. And, and imagine uh, that the Buddha's looking at you with total acceptance. Mm-hmm. And how many of us have ever uh, let it into our hearts that others can look at us with total acceptance? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a hard thing for many people. Inside or outside, it doesn't Absolutely. matter. Yeah? And so when I say, okay, the Buddha's looking at you with acceptance, with compassion, there's no judgment. And then imagining that light from the Buddha in front of you, you imagine it coming into you, you know, filling your entire body-mind complex. And, and you know, with the Buddha's compassion. And then you rest feeling that connection with the Buddha and with the light filling you. And uh, that is also very, very peaceful, very healing for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I find those kind of visualization practices also mm. very good. Yes, yeah, very powerful. So... Um, you know, um, in terms of the kind of classes that are offered in correctional facilities all over the country, and of course, that's all been, you know, kind of um, uh, really limited due to the pandemic over the last couple of years, but hopefully it's all starting to open up again. But but there were many, many classes in correctional facilities all over the country. And, you know, part of our work has been kind of connecting all the dots there with the Prison Dharma Network. And many of the classes, even if they're in the prison chapel and, and are ostensibly called a Buddhist meditation group or something, you know, they're presented almost in a very universalist, almost secular way often. They, they focus on, you know, offering a practice of meditation, of mindfulness of some kind, often some kind of mindful movement, yoga or something, and then dialogue, you know, giving the, the people, the participants, the opportunity to talk about what they're experiencing and so forth. And then there are other programs that are really uh clearly secular that are offered through drug treatment programs, education programs, and that are by design quite secular, but are still offering the practice of mindfulness. And uh, so I'm curious about your thoughts about, you know, uh, programs that would include more Buddhist teaching, some that focus mostly on the practice of meditation, other practices that are purely secular mindfulness practices, whether you see value in all of this or whether you see differences in some of it, or I'm just curious about your thoughts about that. Well, both. I see value in all of it, and I'd see differences in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's why I think a diversity of different programs is good. Yeah, because people have different needs, and they see things in a different way. And some people want just general mindfulness, and some people want to learn Buddhism, per se, as a spiritual path. And so since people have different wishes, and different goals, then it's good that there are classes um, for all of these different things. Mm-hmm. I think they're and, all and, needed. 
Mm-hmm. In some areas, regions of the country, um, this could be true in Western Europe and other places as well, but here in the U.S. at any rate and in Canada, there are areas where there's quite a concentration of different Buddhist groups and traditions, California, obviously, but other places in, in, in the U.S. Oh, yeah. as well. And so there are some prisons that benefit from having two or three different groups offering classes there, right? And, and in my experience, prisoners tend to be pretty eclectic. And are and are less concerned with the sectarian differences than maybe we are on the outside. You know, they go to lots of groups. They'll go to all the Buddhist groups. They'll yeah. even be going to other religious groups. And you know, they're pretty eclectic. And but often I in in the networking work we do, and sometimes when I'm in an area offering a program, we're connecting with people doing the work. There are sometimes you know there may be a couple of different Tibetan Buddhist groups, a Vipassana group, a Zen group. A different group and they're all going into the same prison but they don't know each other they don't connect with each other and in some cases we've been able to connect and i'm curious about your experience with this and whether the prison work seems to be one opportunity for different traditions to intermingle and connect and maybe have a more of a mahasanga approach because the prisoners don't seem to care so much about the sectarian differences in my experience i don't know about yours but yeah that's interesting that you say that because i've run into a few situations not all of them where um, the 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 people in the group will tell me, you know, we come from different traditions, and sometimes there's a little bit of friction about how to run the the group. Uh-huh. Because wants to do this, and somebody wants to do that, and uh, you know, we're from different tra- traditions, and so uh, yeah, my experience is sometimes I have to say, but we're all Buddhists. Mm-hmm. And all the teachings we practice came from the same teacher, and you know, and and talk about how helpful it is to our own practice to learn from different Buddhist traditions. We may follow one of them; that may be something that we really resonate in our heart, with, resonate within our hearts. But we can certainly learn from all the other traditions, and I'll talk about how I've done that myself. You practice in both the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and the Vipassana tradition, right? Weren't you ordained in the Theravadan tradition, or maybe I'm mistaken about No, you ordained No, no, I've I've always been in in Tibetan Buddhism. Oh, oh, I'm mistaken about that. The very first course that I stumbled into. (laughs) Um, But working on this series of books with His Holiness, Mm -hmm. he wanted um, information, not information, he wanted teachings from the Theravada tradition, from the Chinese tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, I went out and I learned from these traditions. Mm -hmm. Also, I had lived in Singapore where there's many different Buddhist traditions. And my full ordination was in Taiwan. So I had some experience with different traditions already. Mm -hmm. Um, And I found it very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. That's certainly been the case for me. I mean, I've been deeply involved in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition my whole Buddhist life as my core tradition, but I've also studied very deeply in Zen and um, Vipassana and other and other forms as well. So, um, you know, another thing I wanted to discuss with you, uh, some incarcerated persons actually get very deeply involved in Buddhist paths, even you know, uh, receiving or going through certain rites of passage, taking precepts or novice vows or or just, you know, uh, taking refuge or the bodhisattva vows or jukai in the Zen tradition. Um, 
you know, myself, I I had already taken many rites of passage, but in but in while in prison, I had the opportunity to become a novice monk in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. I also ended up taking Jukai in the Zen tradition and precepts practice was a very important part of my journey. So I'm curious about what your experience has been, uh, whether you've offered the precepts or offered ordinations or or these aspects in, in prison work. I'm curious what your what your experience has been around that. Okay. Um, yeah, some people have requested to take refuge and to take the five um, lay precepts. Mm-hmm. And I do give those. I have given them uh, in a group situation um, a couple of times. But more often, it's uh, the... Uh, the incarcerated person themselves, uh, rather than the group, will say, I want to take refuge. I want to take mm-hmm. the five precepts. And mm-hmm. so then the ceremony has been uh, uh, organized through the chaplain. Mm-hmm. And so I've had to you know, call the chaplain, explain this, what it is. And then the incarcerated person also talks to the chaplain. And then, you know, we arrange a phone call and everything. And and I've seen that be very, very beneficial for others. Yeah. yeah. It's a little bit eye-opening, too, for the chaplains, because I don't know about you, but my experience has been many of the, of the chaplains don't know much about Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them, I mean, I, there was one person I went to, and the chaplain was trying to convert me to Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, huh? Uh, so, you know, sometimes the, the chaplains are so rooted in the Christian tradition and proselytizing, and we're going to convert everybody and, mm-hmm. and everything. Um, so some, sometimes you have to educate the chaplains. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's gotten a lot better. Uh, it was it was pretty bad uh, years ago. It's gotten a lot better. All you can still run into that. I'll tell you a funny story, though. When I first got there, there was a Catholic nun who came in regularly to the prison, a volunteer. And she was a very elderly, probably in her early 80s. And she was absolutely wonderful. She spent a lot of time up in the hospital. This is a federal prison hospital. She spent a lot of time at the bedside and just meeting uh, people with a lot of love and compassion. But we interacted in the chapel because I was leading a Buddhist group there involved in the hospice work. So I was in the chapel a lot. And, and early on, the first couple of years, she knew I was uh, formerly Catholic. I was raised Catholic. So I'm a lapsed Catholic. Right. So she's trying to reconvert me to Catholicism. Right. And, <laughs> and always talking to me about it. Right. And we'd have these little conversations. But within about two years, I completely shifted. And when I'd run into her, she was telling me about the latest Pema Children book she'd read or this or that thing. And she was getting much more interested. And we started having discussions about Thomas Merton's teachings and the Buddhist teachings. And so it, it kind of went the other direction. Um, um, but yes, you know, it was actually the rites of passage I went through were some of them went relatively easy with the chaplain, but it was always quite a thing. Uh, Venerable Trongarimche came in to do my novice ordination and also an Abhisheka for me. And that was, fortunately, the chapel was supportive then and because they had to shut down the chapel for a whole day and all these things. It was a very unusual occurrence. Later on, when I received a novice priest ordination in the Zen tradition, it kind of got approved. And then other administrators realized we didn't want to approve this. And but we have to go ahead anyway. So they wouldn't allow any pictures to be taken. And as part of the ceremony, I was, you know, put 
the robes were put on me, but then they had to take the robes, take them out of the prison. They wanted no proof that this had ever happened. They didn't want to set a precedent. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I had the thought during my years in prison, and I think this is something I read about maybe uh, from um, Shulak Shivaraksa and, and what is going on in Thailand uh, at one time around environmental work, that some uh, Buddhist monks in Thailand were actually ordaining old growth trees because yeah, yeah. the devout foresters would not cut down an old growth tree if they knew it had been ordained. Right. Yeah. And so I kind of read that and I got the idea that somehow, especially for prisoners doing long time or doing life in prison or doing really serious long time that if they were into it, obviously, uh, or offering ordination could be kind of a protection for them in a sense. I'm curious mm -hmm. as to your thoughts mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, I thought about it a bit. And for the, in terms of the incarcerated person, uh, the ordination, yes, can feel really like a, a protection. Um, but I would, I usually stick with the five precepts. Mm -hmm. yeah? Because um, being a monastic isn't just the precepts. There's much more to involved in being a monastic and the prison environment doesn't give you uh the environment that living in a monastery does yeah and so for that reason i i haven't given ordination uh -huh. mm -hmm. but i feel like the five precepts are certainly they're good enough i mean because all the monastic precepts if you summarize them it comes down to yeah, the an elabor elaboration of that mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. and mm -hmm. so if you take those and really keep those very well um it doesn't matter whether you're wearing robes and shave your head or not and uh, often when explaining the precepts i'll do it from the tibetan view but i also like the way that Thich Nhat han does the, the mm -hmm. five yeah, so, so. Yes. yeah. Uh, and I really like that, especially the one about intoxicants, how mm -hmm. it isn't just, you know, drinking and drugging. It's whatever we use to distract ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's really powerful when you start looking at your life and how much you distract yourself. Yeah. Yeah, the so, connection between wakefulness and sobriety there. They may have a different nuance, but they're very actually ultimately very similar things. The idea of wakefulness and you know, you brought up the monastic environment. A lot of people have tried to make parallels between, you know, being in prison and being in a monastic or an ashram environment. And, you know, uh, there really is very, you know, you, you're all wearing the same clothes. You get three meals a day. You don't have outside responsibilities. But that's about where the parallels end, right? Uh, yes. Most people in prison, you know, monasteries, I, ostensibly, I, and spiritual centers are set up to awaken, right? And yeah. to encourage that and prisons, everybody's trying to kind of numb themselves out, not be there, just get through their time, deaden it. Now, I didn't do that because I knew I was going to be there a long time and I was a serious practitioner already. So I wanted to be awake and alive and go through that experience as difficult as it was. But a lot of prisoners are just kind of trying to numb out, shut down and get through the time. Right. Yeah. And of course, there's a lot of negativity and anger and all the rest of it. So it's it's not really. But. With the right mindset and resources, I think uh, certainly I did. Prisoners can take advantage of being in that kind of 
controlled environment without a lot of outside influence and make it into something like a monastery or ashram for themselves, at least on an inner level. And, and I'm, and I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts about that because you've, you've lived the monastic life, right? And, uh, and you've spoken with a lot of prisoners. So I'm wondering if you can see any parallels there of possibilities. I can see, uh, yeah, parallels and possibilities. Also with the military, mm -hmm. you have a schedule. There's, you know, a structure to it. Uh, you have, you know, even in prison, you have different responsibilities. Maybe mm -hmm. you have a job to work in here or there. And uh, lots of people tell you what you don't want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> and that happens in monasteries, too, you know, because there's somebody organizing the whole community and and you you're part of that community and they'll give you this or that responsibility or whatever. And so the mind that says, you know, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> uh, you know, that comes up in all these different environments. Yeah. Uh, so it is a very good opportunity to, to really look at our mind. And here is where I think the Lojung teachings, the mind training mm -hmm. teachings and the Tibetan tradition are so powerful. And uh, when people can train their mind in those, then whether you're in the military or prison or a monastery or married, it happens in marriage too, doesn't it? Then, you know, if, if you have nourished your own heart by practicing the mind training uh, teachings, learning them and med meditating on them, then when situations come up, you apply them and and you're able to work with your mind and quiet your mind there's one uh uh inmate that i've worked with for a number of years uh he's in for a double murder he has life yeah and he is one of the best practitioners i've known mm -hmm. you know constantly you know because he lives, you know, I mean, you know what it's like a dorm with 300 people and they're all, some are snoring and some are swearing and some are talking and some are sleeping. And he just has the idea in his mind every day, you know, whoever is in front of me, I, I'm going to be kind to that person. And he really practices that. It's quite amazing. And when he sees uh, other people are having difficulties. He'll go and talk to them and, uh, you know, help them process what they're going through. Um, he doesn't hold grudges. He, he may get triggered for an instant with anger, but he'll calm himself through applying the teachings. Um, I, I really respect that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I don't think people on the outside always realize this. There are uh, there are some really deep practitioners in prison, especially among the so-called lifer uh, population or any experience along. I mean, there are practitioners that have been, uh, you know, practicing two, three hours a day for 20, 30 years. You know, and they're they're very, very deep practitioners. Absolutely. And, and our our hope is that in some cases they will eventually be released because they can come back to their communities and really be of, of tremendous benefit in their communities. So um, 
you know, that maybe that's a segue into talking about this. One of the great challenges in, in this work, from my perspective, uh, I think a lot of people in this work would share this, that uh, is the release transition and post-release work, because, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure for it is just really not there. Uh, you know, the, most of the halfway houses in this country were originally religiously founded, often Catholic, but they mostly all became secularized. They're mostly all for profit now. Uh, many of the, you know, evangelical Christian ministry is very big in prisons, and but they have a huge infrastructure in this country. In fact, you know, a lot of prisons have rules that the people going into the prison to offer programs can have no contact with people when they come out. So there are some Christian groups that have people delivering the program in the prison and they have other people that meet and work with the person when they get out. But, you know, most Buddhist communities in this country, we're just not far enough along, mature enough to have the resources and the infrastructure to be able to offer that. And then even at times when we've tried, like when we were based in Colorado and we were even trying to offer some post-release work with one juvenile facility that's a well-known lookout mountain up in Golden, Colorado, but when people were released, they were released all over the front range from as far south as Pueblo to as far north almost as Wyoming. So where are you going to put your group? And, you know, very, very challenging to do the post-release work. And uh, so and, and then also, you know, there can be problems when when prisoners, even who've gotten really involved in meditation or the Buddhist path, per se, they come out and, you know, the available Buddhist centers may be a long way from their neighborhood. Uh, and maybe in a kind of different cultural setting. And some communities, and this is true with, I think, a lot of religious traditions, even though they have volunteers going in, sometimes they're a little uneasy about prisoners coming back and joining their communities, right? They're just, not, it's human, there's fear that comes up, right? So I'm, I'm curious about what your experience has been about whether you've had the opportunity to support any people coming out of prison or reintegrating into the community and continuing their path. Yeah. Well, there's two things here. One is, is, you know, being able to have a halfway house or a place where people can come and, uh, and, and help, uh, you know, to, with employment. Mm -hmm. And you really have to have a strong Buddhist group and you have to have people who don't work nine to five jobs. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, nowadays, most people are working. And it's it's hard to find people who have that kind of time to to set things up. I guess you could do it uh, if you pay them. Usually, we try and do things with mm -hmm. volunteers. But if you really want to do it in a serious way, you would have to pay people. And most Buddhist groups don't have the extra finances to be able to mm -hmm. do that. Um, what my experience has been when people have been released is it's so different and it depends really on the person um there's one person who i worked with a lot when he was uh incarcerated for quite a while um he stayed in touch when we got out he was in ohio uh, this is different from the first guy mm -hmm. he was in ohio and he wound up he now lives um in spokane and so he comes up to the Abbey quite regularly, and he's part of the group, you know, here. And so that turned out really, really well. Other people um, will write for a short while, and then I stop hearing from them. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not the one who, who stops, but 
but they stop. And I think what happens is when they're in prison, they have so much time that learning Buddhism and receiving letters, personal letters, mm-hmm. re- they have the time for that. They love the correspondence. They mm-hmm. love the reading. But when they get out, well, they're going to their families. Some of them go back to their old neighborhoods, which is a disaster. It's not where you want to be <laughs> when you're released. Um, and they, uh, you know, they're so excited about the sense world mm-hmm. yeah now you you know all those things that you dreamed about in prison you know a hot pizza instead of cardboard pizza and you know a real chocolate chip cookie instead of a plastic one mm-hmm. and and friends to talk to and control over the television set you can watch anything you want that when they're out they just get lost in that i Mm -hmm. think yeah and uh yeah they get lost and so the friends that they made while they were incarcerated are and the the dharma itself gets put to the side because the vibration of you know sense stimuli and Pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, often there's a bias where you hear that, well, you know, prison religion, prison, it doesn't stick. Right. And they often discount even are are they really sincerely involved while they're inside. Right. And I think that's really unfair because I think people are very sincerely involved. Mm -hmm. But so many people, when they get released, they're just at survival. They're trying Mm -hmm. to get housing. They're trying to get a job. Often they are ending up back in the old neighborhood with all those influences and they're put out there with no resources. Uh, you know, uh, I have a, a, a colleague as part of our organization that delivers our path of freedom program in a huge county jail in Los Angeles, the men's central jail, as well as the twin towers. And they literally let people out there one minute after midnight, cause they don't let them out until they have to. And, uh, in, in no money and right, you know, in, into a terrible you know, drug infested neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Welcome back to the world, right? So, you know, it is really challenging. And, you know, how many of us anymore in modern life uh, correspond with anyone with letters, written letters that we put in a post office, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, people get out in the modern world, and they're inundated with everything. And, it, you know, so yeah, it, it is very challenging. But I do think it's, it's, um, I think it's something those of us in the prison Dharma movement, we, we really need to figure out how to try to facilitate that transition. I know the the 12-step movement of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, so forth, does a pretty good job of being able to meet people, you know, when they get out and get them right to a meeting and, you know, get them, you know, and I think it's that early transition. Uh, there's an advantage there that those meetings are pretty universally available all over the country. They're in lots of neighborhoods. Whereas, uh, you know, it's not the case for your meditation centers and Buddhist centers. But anyway, I just aspire that we can find a way. You know, we actually a group that I was involved with in Boulder, Colorado. We tried to get the contract for the halfway house uh, and we thought we had a chance. It turned out it was kind of rigged in the same corporation that's had it for a long time was really going to get it. But but, uh, you know, lots of people have talked about trying to establish a contemplative or meditation or Buddhist focused halfway house. I don't think it's happened yet. Bowen Cedar Laws Off did have kind of a transitional 
housing situation at the Human Kindness Foundation briefly for a while. Um, but anyway, I think it's it's something I really hope in my lifetime that we can see that the post-release part of prison Dharma movement can begin to happen in some way or another. I don't know if you know uh, Kayleen uh, McAllister. Uh, yes, I know the name, yeah. Yeah, so Kayleen um, is involved in, in prison work and she set up a bakery and a lot of the guys she worked with in prison come out and now work. Well, that's right. She's in Missouri, right? Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. I know all about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so you should really interview her. I yeah. Think. Yeah. We really should. I'd forgotten about her work. Yeah. She does great work there in St. Louis. And, you know, actually there's a lot of like the, the Grayson model, the Grayson bakery that my teacher, my Zen teacher, Bernie Glassman started. Mm-hmm. And there are other situations where a lot of people are coming into those facilities who are coming out sometimes out of homelessness, sometimes out of jail, sometimes out of prison, but do find their way into some of these uh, post-release facilities that aren't ostensibly Buddhist or even contemplative, but they, there are some programs. We've offered programs and facilities like that. So sometimes you can make use of existing infrastructure and go offer programs. Yeah. 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 And, and for so many people, getting a job is difficult. Mm-hmm. So if you have a place, you know, she hires them to work in the, in the bakery. Yeah, that's ideal situation. And the bakery becomes theirs, which is is really, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, another guy I know, uh, it also, you know, Fleet, it depends on somebody's attitude while they're incarcerated. Because some people, while they're incarcerated, they are consciously preparing for their release mm-hmm. and they are meeting people and making connections so that, that when they're released they have people mm-hmm. that they know and who can help uh so i was just thinking of one man that you know i corresponded with for many many years uh he's also in missouri and he uh got released i also met his mom because you know, his mom, he he would tell his mom about the teachings and then his mom wanted to meet me. And so we had many phone calls. And then when he was going through the whole parole business, we were in touch. Um, but he got out and because he had his family behind him, he had a place to live. Uh, but while he was incarcerated, he learned how to um, make videos and edit videos. Mm. So he learned a skill quite deliberately. He used to make uh, films for the Department of, of Corrections in Missouri while he was in prison. Wow. And when he got out, then he uh, he did some volunteer work for us, making some, some videos for us. Uh, but then he got a job at a, um, a TV station where he lives. Wow. So for him, Doing this, you know, he had started way before thinking about it, planning about it. And so the the people who have that mindset, you know, they have connections. They know what they're going to do. And they, they uh, my experience is they usually do pretty well at, once they get out, once they get settled with a roof over their head and, you know, but they have friends, they can get a job, they can. You know, right, and really yeah. important. Yeah, but then there's other people who just they're just flying, you know, 
right by the seat of their pants. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And, and not making preparations for getting right. out. Yeah, they're not yeah. thinking about jobs and and uh, how to present themselves. They aren't learning about how to write a CV and so on. So, you know, as much as we can also encourage people to do these kind of very practical things mm -hmm. that are not ostensibly Buddhist, but wow, if you do them, you're going to make your life easier and your practice easier. Yeah, that could be very helpful too for those of us offering meditation and Dharma groups inside prisons and jails to bring in a little bit of that practical training, especially for people who are getting close to release and, and help them support them in, in, in that focus. Venerable children, you know, this, this has been really wonderful. And uh, I'm, I certainly want to give you the opportunity to share any last thoughts with us. But before that, the, the one last question I have is, is for Buddhist practitioners and, you know, anyone on a committed spiritual path or contemplative path, meditative path on the outside, just the, the path of being a prison Dharma volunteer. I wonder if you could say something about the value of that path and the experience and how it fits in with someone's spiritual development, their development as a Buddhist practitioner to be involved in prison work. Uh, I think it's really great. You know, it's the perfect opportunity um, to do, you know, especially if you're in a tradition that emphasizes compassion and benefiting sentient beings, it's the perfect opportunity to do so, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so you just step out and 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 do it and you learn so much you know just you learn about yourself you learn about what incarcerated life is like um you learn about all the different kinds of dispositions and interests sentient beings have so it's you know for me i have felt very privileged when i've gone into prisons or when I'm, I'm corresponding with some people, um, because I learn much more than, than I give. I receive much more than I give. Hmm. Um, so I would encourage people uh, to try it. Some people are a little bit nervous at the beginning. Kayleen, who I just told you, who is, you know, she eventually got hired to work in the Missouri uh, DOC. So, uh, but... At the beginning, when she was interested, she was really nervous. So we, I took her in, and we, we uh, went together for her first prison visit. And that's all she needed was somebody to hold her hand during the first mm -hmm. visit. And then she just took off and ran and has done really wonderful work. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. It is a, a perfect expression of the Bodhisattva path. And, and we do learn so much. And I think if people can come in with that mindset like you did, where, you know, these are just fellow human beings and you're going to learn more from them than you have to offer. I mean, you are bringing something in, but you'll learn so much more and receive so much more. I think that's people who are involved in really deep service work of that kind. We just so often hear that, that I get so much more than I feel like I give. Right. So mm -hmm. absolutely. Any other final thoughts you'd like to leave our audience with, Venerable Children? Um, nothing offhand, but to thank you for everything you're doing and, you know, how you came out and really jumped in and made, made prison service work your life. And it's wonderful. 
Well, I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. I was, you know, I can well understand some people, they get out of prison, they just want to leave it behind and never think about it again. Very understandable. I was in long enough that it just became part of my life. And and all the people who are incarcerated, they're just kind of innately my brothers and sisters. So it was kind of choiceless to to continue. But I feel very grateful for the opportunities I've had to be of some service. So yeah. Yeah. you're serving them and you're also bridging the gap between people on the outside who are like this regarding incarcerated mm-hmm. people and helping them to see they're just regular people, mm-hmm. you know. And they happen to be in certain situations. And if we had grown up in certain situations mm-hmm. or been in certain places at certain times, we might have very well wound up in prison ourselves. Absolutely. Um, so Absolutely. to make that connection, I think, is so important because, um, you know, to benefit incarcerated people, we need the federal government and state governments to see um, the benefit of doing that. And so that depends on the voters, too. So by introducing, you know, people on the outside to people on the inside and vice versa, um, I think that, you know, in another way can can work in a very beneficial way. Absolutely. So important, because I think there's been a natural effort to try to isolate the world of prisons. And it's kind of this collective social shadow that we just think we can isolate. And and we really need to open that up and bridge those worlds and, and see people that we all we're all just human beings, whatever our situation is. And, and that's so important. And for, for citizens who know nothing about that world to see that prisons are prisoners are people just like them and they are completely you know to the extent that they have made mistakes they are completely redeemable and they have inherent value and have tremendous amount to offer when they come out to their communities so yeah we need to make that more visible to people yeah well venerable children thank you so much for being part of our summit and for your time today and for all the incredible work you've been doing for so many years uh to support people who are incarcerated and all the leadership you offer uh in terms of uh, women in Buddhism and female monastics and, and all the challenges they face around the world. And uh, just thank you so much for your work and your service. Thank you, too. And can I just point out one small thing? Absolutely. Okay. One of the inmates I work with, he and I uh, did a book, and it's called Unlocking Your Potential, How to Get Out of Your Own Way. And... Uh, that's wonderful. So you co-wrote that with uh, uh, someone who's incarcerated. Oh, that's yeah. absolutely wonderful. Didn't you have a series of small pamphlets that were written for prisoners at one time? Going, uh, I, I've been trying to find those, and it seems like I remembered them from a long time ago. Not small pamphlets, but um, I, I had many. Um, actually, they're little booklets. Little booklets, yeah, yeah. When you said pamphlets, I was thinking of a yeah, yeah, no little booklets. They were like little little books. Yes. And uh, they were published for free distribution. Uh, They're still published for free distribution in Singapore. Uh And so if you're interested, I could give you the the contact and you can write and ask them. We always make a donation to them. Um, And uh, yeah, and we we send those books out to a lot of people. Oh, that's Uh, wonderful. We made touch with. uh, what's it called? The, um, the corporate body of the Buddha. 
which mm-hmm. sounds like a weird title, but it's an organization in Taiwan who, that's dedicated to printing material for free distribution. So they're the ones who, who did Unlocking Your Potential. And, uh, you know, if you send them, uh, you know, Buddhist material, it has to be Buddhist, not secular. Mm-hmm. Um, then they're very happy, you know, if they're able to, to print it for free distribution. And then, you know, like we have many copies of this book that we give out to. to well, that's people. wonderful. And we, we will follow up with you about that. And uh, yeah, there are so many um, Asian Buddhist organizations that have been very generous in that guard and publishing, you know, books in, in the hundreds of thousands of millions, really, to make them like uh, all Lama Yeshe's books and, and so yeah. forth. And yeah, yeah. So uh, just letting people know you can find more about your work at thuptonchildren.org and also at shravasti.org. So again, thank you so much for your time today and for everything you do. Thank you, thank you children. Too. Thank you very much. Be well. You too. Continue on. <laughs> thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.